Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of the world, and welcome to a new episode of our Series 1, this time with the award-winning respected British journalist Lawrence DeMello. She's a multilingual, factual movie and TV producer, educator, international speaker and author. She's also the founder and managing director of Golden Eye Film and Publishing Limited, using both mainstream and independent media platforms. Through her extensive career, she's worn many hats like TV and radio presenter, feature film studio floor manager and creative director Dimello is a well-connected Intel expert and therefore an editor at Vicky's Books and member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and has been a media professional since 1985, making programs with and for such stations as Discovery Channel, The Learning Channel, Rai, National Geographics, Berlusconi Networks and TV Russia. BBC and Channel 4. Interestingly, considering our series on the space program, DeMello is also executive assistant to Dr. Carol Rosen, who was the aide to famous NASA director and head of the Apollo programs, Werner von Braun. Together, they cooperate in the ISCOS, that is, Institute for Security and Cooperation in Outer Space, and at the executive team of its Outer Space Security and Development Treaty. She is also a senior team member for the Heroes Memorial Fund of COP, that is, Combined Operations Pilotage Parties, and was the confidant and aide to John Ainsworth Davis, also known as Christopher Creighton, Churchill's number one World War II political assassin and agent. Lawrence uses the pen name Ami de Creighton, which is a pun referring to her deceased friend who worked directly under Ian Fleming, famous creator of James Bond. As a member of the British Association of Journalists, she holds an international press pass and has indeed written on many world affairs like the assassination of Princess Diana, where she did an investigation on behalf of Mohammed al-Fayed, 9-11 and the connection to Silverstein, the Italian Cosa Nostra, the murder of God's banker Roberto Calvi and its relation to the P2 and Vatican, British political corruption, crime and intel, especially regarding Scotland Yard and the security service. But first and foremost, at least in the forum context, she is one of the world's leading experts on Organisation der Ehemaligen SS-Angehörigen, better known as Odessa, 
the organization of former SS members, which was the initial network of exile Nazis before being superseded by Die Spinne, the network of Die Führer of the Fourth Reich, Martin Bormann, which remains her main focus. She has agreed to come on to speak with us today about a few of the many facts she's researched about this subject. Let me also remind you that the main reason we are covering this is that it is a bridge between the roots, that is the preliminary movements in recent history, up to the end of World War II, and the post-war history, where we are seeing the emergence of our modern-day breakaway civilization of military-industrial complex, intel-deep state, corporate fascism, globalist oligarchs, and their classified space program. Understanding the spider Bowman and his role, especially regarding financial and intel networking, is crucial to all of this. Today, we have a juicy for you folks. Here at the forum, we are not just inviting dissident scholars, but we're also going to try to get on as many genuine investigative journalism, boots-on-the-ground researchers as possible. And one such that we finally managed to get hold of, and who has kindly agreed to come on, is a British reporter who's not just blessed with beauty and brains, but also courage and possesses deep knowledge of a subject we've dug into for a while, namely the brown eminence himself, Martin Bormann. And our guest, therefore, is, of course, Lawrence DeMello. Welcome to the forum, Lawrence. I don't know how to say that. I think that's amazing. You should be, work- <laughs> you should be working in film and television. My good. <laughs> oh, I hope I live up to that. <laughs> we are, because uh, one of our video makers turns this radio show he turns it into a kind of documentary with illustrations with with movie clips pictures yeah and that gets the hits up right so it's eventually well thank you very much for inviting me sure have so much respect for your work but today it's all about the brown eminence and it's so interesting lawrence because you have a completely different take than most of the guests we've had on so far when it comes to the escape scenario itself? I, I would say extraction. Extraction, right. Rather than, well, escape, extraction, forward slash extraction, yes. Yeah. Um, well, there are various theories, of course, but one has to look at where he ended up. And we know all about the bones in 1972. Right. There's, there's a lot of ties going into, you know, the British, uh, I mean, your work with um, Davis uh, and your experience. But uh, you know what? Let's just do it chronologically. Okay. Let's start okay. with his escape and let's, let's move onwards down the timeline uh, until his death, actually. Okay, brilliant. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay, so my investigation didn't start directly onto Martin Borman and it came about that I was already researching Odessa um, and I'm very fortunate that I've actually, as you said, boots on the ground, actually been had the luxury to be on the ground in South America for so long. Can I just ask you about that? Because if people don't know it, you actually live in Argentina. You live in the heart of the, <laughs> I would call it darkness, but this story. I do actually, yeah. 
I live in the Nazi exile, in a Nazi exile. You do, you do live in the, in the exile state. But in Britain today, this, uh, you know, free speech is really, really in, in danger. They just outlawed uh, whistleblowers. I just saw an, a tenured professor who was booted and lost his tenure because he was criticizing Zionism. And Ken Livingston, the former major, was booted from, from Labour because he said a historic fact that the Nazis and the Zionists cooperated. So I'm just wondering, Lawrence, do you experience more free speech in Argentina these days than in the United Kingdom? I don't think it's a question of free speech. It's a question about what they can do to you wherever you are. Right. And you have to look about David Irving. And of course, you're all familiar with David yeah. Irving, brilliant historian. And his views, whether he had views on the Holocaust or the numbers, I think it was something to do with the numbers. But the point is we have lost the capacity that we can uh, debate and come to our own conclusions. And, of course, and look what happened to Irvin. Yeah. Uh, he did say some things that got him into trouble, which were maybe were not based on absolute evidence, but we're entitled to be able to give an opinion. And not everything that we say is based on absolute evidence. As you say, you have a conversation at home. And he actually, who was probably the premier historian, uh, was that people are excommunicated from their institutions, they lose their funding, yeah. their persona non grata, you lose your home, they cut you with your finances. I have experienced a bit of that, which initially, I came from the United Kingdom And I came to Argentina in 2002 and I left behind an office at Pinewood Studios. So I had a sort of fixed base as a, a television producer and journalist. And of course, coming here, I became independent and I did leave behind me a little bit of harassment, I should say, or heat under the collar due to the, the work that I had done on the Princess Diana mm. um, assassination And the also the assassination of Dr. David Kelly, who was the weapons expert that was sent to Iraq, as you know, to right. see whether Saddam had. So, well, wait, what do you think about Robin Cook? I've always thought there was something fishy there. Well, I haven't looked into it, but the people that I'm connected with, various people that I would say that are legitimate with their knowledge within the intelligence services. And I don't think I've come across one yet that says that he wasn't assassinated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but that's, I can't make a comment on that because to be honest, I haven't looked at it. It would just be just pure, sure, sure. pure opinion. Yeah. And when it comes to Borman, of course, a lot of things I feel in will be an opinion, but they are based on compelling evidence that's been accumulated over a period of now, what year are we now, 2017, a period of uh, over 50, well over 15, 16 years. And still it's such a hot topic. Most of the people listening to this, many of them will, some of them will think uh, this is entertainment. Some of them will think, uh, well, it's speculation. Some of them will, uh, but, but it will be like an unreal feeling, notwithstanding the long time span since the war, right? Yeah. But what you need to understand, people, is that this is real stuff. Digging into these things has consequences. Uh, we alluded in earlier show to other researchers that's gotten kind of into trouble by trying to dig up this thing. And especially the money trail is a very risky thing because uh, there's still people around today 
who I say I call them his successors, the the Bormann Reich, as we sometimes refer to you it. You talking the, about the, you talk about the European Union and the, the members sitting in the House of the European <laughs> that's Parliament. That's one of the manifestations, right? You should start there. I think you should start there exactly. So, well, I'm talking about the handlers uh, behind the union, behind Bilderberger, behind all these things. But uh, never mind. Let's rewind to you. You you were moving already back in 2000. You went to Argentina. Well, yeah. Well, I originally came in 2001, but I really, I would say I actually started on the investigation. As I say, it wasn't directed just on Borman. And what happened was I, out of Pinewood Studios, I found myself far away without having the same sort of organization that I had there. Mm-hmm. I was working, um, our company were preferred producers for Discovery Channel, National Geographic, Canal Plus. So we were high end, what are called preferred producers. And that means that the big networks will come to you or we could pitch something and they commission it. So I came from a a background where I had a lot of connections, obviously, in the media, etc. And now I found myself pretty much sort of floating here in South America without an office, whatever. Um, so I had already been investigating certain things, uh, Colombian drug cartels. I actually, my first, very first investigation was many, many years ago. And it was on the Ambrosian bank affair with Roberto Calvi, who was found the banker. Wow. The the propaganda do thing. Well, you've been into that too. (laughs) Absolutely. It's absolutely, it's all connected. Yeah. Well, I lived for many years in Italy, you see, and I worked for. How is it that you're still alive? (laughs) <laughs> I'm, maybe I've got some good friends. Uh, yeah. It's very possible. Um, and remember, if you have lots of enemies, you also have people. Well, I'm, listen, I'm a very, very small fish in a very big pond. But, you know, I'm probably one of the little fish that eats away at something that is is very uh, controversial. Mm. Um, Before you know it, you're at their Achilles heel, right? And uh, who knows, but uh, something just happened uh, even today. <laughs> Should we mention that? Well, well, there you go. There you you go. A little bit of, yeah. It's more disruption. You know, it's not also, people assume that if the, whether it's the intelligence services, whether it's uh, errant agents or whatever, anybody that has an agenda to put obstacles. I mean, it happened to me constantly when I was working on the Diana investigation. Mm. So it's not that they deliberately going to come and put a 22 behind your ear. You may not be that important because by killing you, they draw a lot of attention because they've got to clean up the mess. So they're only going to take you out if you're somebody like uh, Dr. David Kelly of the Princess of Wales or uh, people that are really getting, uh, uh, have a voice and a platform Mm. which is taken seriously. Because remember, Al, People like myself and other colleagues, like Tony Goslin or whatever. And in fact, he told me we're probably the only two accredited British journalists that are actually doing this stuff that is considered, you know, putting your toes in in murky waters and still retaining our press credentials. When I say press credentials, I'm talking about he's National Union of Journalists, I'm British Association of Journalists. And most of our colleagues, and I hate to say this, guys, they're probably listening, you know, you sold yourselves out, you prostituted yourself to a mainstream media that is totally controlled and you you took the buck. And I find that it disgusts me. My opinion is that the BBC went to hell uh, uh, under Tony Blair. I think they went to hell many, many years ago. Long before I remember that? when I, yeah, when I first came back from Italy, I was there for 15 years. I went to the UK and I contacted a friend. I said, I wonder if I could get a job 
at the BBC and he said, Lawrence, everybody's li- everybody wants to leave the BBC. Nobody's going there anymore. It's done. You know, the days of the days of, you know, genuine yeah. um, journalism and, and investigations. Anyway, I came here in 2002. So I leave behind all these other investigations. As I said I was many years in Italy and I was many years at Pinewood Studios. Um, and I made a life change to come to South America and to Argentina. When I got down here, of course, I was thinking, well, I don't have my office there anymore. What can I do? And in one way, it's really good because you're a complete free agent. And whereas before, when one was working for the big networks, like let's just say Discovery Channel, when any material that goes in is edited to death. I mean, everything's edited, cut, 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 yeah, cut, right, cut. Right. Yeah. Because not to offend this group of people or this minority or the Zionists. So you have to be, you're, you're very restricted. So when I came here, I was I looked around, of course, uh, the Odessa conversation. I married into what's considered a, a, an aristocratic family, actually Anglo-Argentine German family. Um, oh, no. And conversations about German Germany were uh, not frequent, but would come up. And we, me, with my never-ending thirst for knowledge and information, I would prod old aunts and old uncles and these very affluent people at luncheon parties when they would talk about Zishi Thiessen because they're all friends. And the Thiessen family were the big steel family. In fact, he got into trouble with Hitler. But a lot of them came down here. Just to keep our audience up to date, Fritz Thiessen, obviously the uh, IG Farbig guy. But there is an interesting conspiracy hypothesis there. And that's that they were, uh, before the war, uh, this is probably a Bormann's plot but he they took some of these industrialists they tainted them as anti-nazis so that if it went sour like it did Mm. they would have some of their people after the war being uh, cleared right and Mm. could continue the monkey business ah i see what you're saying well that's very very possible but anyway i know that they came down here and they opened up big uh, horse breeding centers here because I can't mention names, but somebody that I was related to by marriage mm-hmm. was involved in Arab horses. And then I was told, I was introduced to these teeth. And of course, my head's going bing, 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 you know, <laughs> because I was already looking at a desk. I was like, oh my God, you know, you go to lunch with the teeth. And I, this was very, very early on. And this much later, I heard uh, commentary that actually some of the Borman children still today uh, visited the some of the Thiessen homes here. You mean the, the, the children in Germany, the official children? They're actually not in Germany anymore. Well, maybe one or two are. But the official... Yeah, yeah, officially. Well, they're his uh, legitimate children. Yes, some of the ones. His legitimate, I mean, yeah. Mm. I know that two of the daughters, well, I know, I've been informed that two of the daughters used to come frequently to the Thiessen fort, if you want to call it that. Interesting. Uh, Very, very private family. And, of course, so I started to look at Odessa and... I originally was looking at doing a television series called Children of Odessa, where I had the, because remember, normally a film company, you've got like six weeks to do a recce. You would send, I mean, I'm on the other side of the world. So I'm very fortunate to be here that I have that time to go and meet and dig and spend time because I don't have a clock ticking that, you know, I've got six weeks to do a recce. Right. Um, so, yeah, I started to, 
build connections, you have to build up relationships. And it's very important when, you, when you're doing this sort of work, uh, one of the key, you have to build up relationships and get people to trust you because where I'm looking for information, at the same time, Al, I'm not uh, a hack that's going to suck information and go and call a newspaper and I'm going to write an article and I'm going to make 500 bucks on some dirty story. That's not what I'm doing. No. My whole intention was to first look at it and and piece it together to say, is this real? Could this be real? Because I kept hearing in conversation socially this one. Oh, so-and-so's father came over from Germany and this one. So I continued. And, and this was, sorry, this was in Buenos Aires, right? This is in Buenos Aires. I actually live in the province mm. province of Buenos Aires, which is about, well, I'm not going to tell you, but they know where I am anyway. But I'm on a farm. And uh, I'm outside the city. Have you been in Bariloche? Oh, have I been to Bariloche? Yes. Well, Bariloche, now let me tell you about Bariloche. Obviously, what happens when you're in a community, in anything, any community, whatever it is, when you're all doing something that's similar, you're going to meet all the people that are doing the same thing you're doing. So I would start to bump into one particular brilliant researcher, and his name is Abel Basti. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, I actually have him on my notes here to ask you about him. So great. Well, let me tell you. So tell us about Basti. Right, Basti, amazing man. Um, I've had a run-in with some people uh, to do with somebody who took his work, uh, which was Grey Wolf, but we won't talk about that. Mm. Um, Abel Basti, whenever I crossed paths, Basti would come up. And so we would meet and cross paths and swap because he was focused on Hitler I was focused on Odessa. But the further I got into the Odessa, the Borman subject kept cropping up and Borman. And, mm. and it was like, he's everywhere I go. People say, ah, oh, yes, but Borman. Now, mm. before we go on to that, I would like to mention, people say, oh, Borman got away. It's all a conspiracy theory. I hate that term. But um, now one has to analyze. Let's look at the documented facts before we even approach Borman, the possibility that he actually was rescued or extracted and came to South America. We know who Dr. Joseph Mengel is. Anybody that's familiar with World War II and atrocities in Buchenwald, or is it Buchenwald uh, concentration camp? And Auschwitz will be aware of what they call the uh, angel of death. Angel right? of death, yes. Mm. And Unfortunately, I think he's born on the same day as me. Oh, well, there you go. But the planets were in a different position when you were born. It was indeed. Uh, plus, I'm more handsome than him, but a terrible guy anyway. Well, actually, go on. supposedly quite charming, you know. Yeah, he was. I know. Brilliant. And let's not forget, he was uh, a doctor of medicine, genuine doctor of medicine. His specialist, he was also in gynecology and obstetrician. And also, he was really into genetics, as we know. His obsession with creating the perfect Aryan race, which was echoed in the film, I can't remember what year it was. uh, Boys from Brazil? The old Boys from Brazil film, which is not, it's fiction, but it's not so far from the potential reality. Okay, (laughs) so when Mengele came to South America, he first went to, to, he was in Paraguay and in Brazil, but then he came to Argentina. You know about this. Mm. Those that don't know um, should take note on this. And he came to Argentina, obviously, during the the um, the government of Juan Domingo Perón. And not only did he come here and he was protected here, he was actually given a license to practice under the Ministry of Argentine Health with his medical license. And he was given 
the right to practice as a physician in Buenos Aires. Now, you have to think about that. So he's here. He's practicing. Yeah, but obviously he had a cover name, didn't he? No, he used his name Mengele. Wow. They didn't even bother to try to hide it. Hide it. But even more important than that, obviously abortion, uh, even today, is illegal here because they're a very Catholic country. But certainly in the 50s, the early 60s, abortion was something you wouldn't even discuss. And Mengele had a clinic in Buenos Aires, and it's documented this, if you go through the the, uh, court files at the time, that he was actually giving, um, obviously, illegal covert abortions to the girls of very wealthy families here. And what happened was, during one of these procedures, one of these young girls, young girl about 19 or 20, she died for post-operative complications while she was in his clinic. And there was a police report made and he was arrested. Not only arrested the fact that this girl had died in his clinic, but he was performing a totally illegal medical procedure, okay, which is abortion. Mm. And with within six or seven hours, there was a phone call made by a judge that he had to be released. And he hmm. went back to his clinic. So he was protected from the top. Yeah, right. Well, we know that Adolf Eichmann was here because we know Mossad came to get him. Yeah. Um, but but according to, to another guy we had on, Harry Cooper, he thought that of all these guys, Eichmann wasn't actually that. Uh, he was uh, frozen out of Odessa and Ishpena uh, for some reason. Well, yeah, yeah, most of, most of them. I think the important one was Borman, absolutely. But, but he felt that Eichmann wasn't in the loop, unlike Barbie and, and, and these other guys. Um, when this, where, after it all fell apart. This, because. Uh, Mengele was, obviously. Well, Mengele was. Now, I'll tell you, this is why I mentioned him. So just to make an example, when people say, oh, why would there be a way? And I'm trying to justify now how the British intelligence services knew about the whereabouts of these men. So we have Dr. Joseph Mengele. We also have Karl Vernet. Now, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Karl Vernet. Karl Vernet was a doctor they don't talk much about. He was also uh, Buchenwald, and he was actually more superior to Mengele, he mm. was the ghastly chap that invented the pink triangle. The Jews had the star, the yellow star, and the homosexuals had the pink triangle in the concentration Right, camp. right. Mm. There's actually a book, I can't remember the name of the author, but anyway, it's Pink Triangle. So Karl Vernet was the main man, the doctor, that would extract monkey's testicles and implant them on these poor homosexual prisoners supposedly to see whether they could correct their homosexuality hang on he 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 replaced their own scrotums with monkeys uh... not the scrotums the testicles so he would take up yeah he would castrate them Uh in effect and transplant monkeys testicles to see if they he believed there was some theory that maybe the homosexuality was connected to the testicle i don't know what they were thinking about what a lunatic even in the 40s even in the 30s believing that i'm glad you said that and this is a thing now there is an there's an agenda here that not many people talk about carl vernet unless you do what you or i do and we're familiar with his name now carl vernet also came to argentina and he also practiced as a doctor here under the Peron protection. But it's much worse. When he died, he was buried in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. And where was he buried? Have a guess. Uh, next to, to the palace of uh, Peron? No, in the British Cemetery of Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. So you have to ask yourself, with his name on the grave, Karl Werner. Right, his very British name. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the point is, the British know who he was. How did that man come to be buried in the British cemetery in Buenos Aires, the British cemetery? Mm. Okay, so what I'm saying is it's not a secret here. It wasn't a secret. Now, the difference in those days, some people forget this. We have this global network connection through our cell phone, our iPad, our computer. We're all connected. And, you know, this is the beauty that we have today and how people can access research and we discover more. And this is why the Internet has become a threat against our governments, those governments that are AWOL. But in those years, in the 40s, People, a lot of people went to the cinema to watch the news. Okay, so mm. you go, it, this is the whole point going back to the Hitler thing where they say, did Hitler escape? Where was the body? Many people didn't even really know what Hitler looked like. You know, we all right. know what, I mean, my 11 year old knows what Hitler looks like, but then not many people knew what Bormann looked like. Yeah, or Verne. That's true. Or Mengele. So this is this, how is this possible? How was this possible? Well, it was very possible. Because also at the time, somebody like Bormann would probably be somebody like, I don't know, let's, I'm not going to say a name of any politician, but it was just another enemy politician. So, so many of them wouldn't even need a facelift. They wouldn't need surgery, plastic surgery. Well, I'm not, not even, no, that's another point. But also people, it was actual, it was present time. Mm. These uh, monsters as well take on a whole big persona. But at the time, they could move around. Yeah. In a way, they were average Joes, basically. Average Joes. They could disappear in a city. They could cross, uh, make transatlantic uh, um, cruise boat crossings without. And, and so much, much easier to fake papers back then because this stuff was not, wasn't digital, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's easy if you've got the Red Cross and the Vatican helping, and that's even more easy, isn't it? Exactly. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Except a month and line. little paper stamps. Yeah. Exactly. So no access to digital databases. So Yeah, but we'll be getting ahead of ourselves, Lawrence. Let's rewind yeah. to... Let's rewind to the extraction. Now, yeah. what I believe has happened. So there was there were deals done, as we know, at the end of the war. Churchill and the United States were not the big chums that everybody likes to believe they were. Um, you know, we have this romantic idea that USA and the, 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 the Yukusa uh you know brotherhood it was not there churchill despised the americans the americans were also very insecure about their technical capacity and as you know the tube alloys project which were the foundation stone for the american manhattan project actually started the atom was split in cambridge i think it was in 1936 or something uh canadian and british and actually there was a german scientist involved and when the americans were planning their nuclear their atomic um, program yeah they built on the british right the british research well they didn't build on the british they actually invited the british to, to participate now churchill was obsessed with technology Mm. And he, re he was a very brilliant man, very cunning, very sharp. I mean, Churchill probably, I think it was probably one of the greatest minds that we know in history. And, you know, people say, oh, well, he just made mistakes. He's a warmonger. No, he was very, very calculated. So 
he was desperate for the funding of the British Atomic Project and we did not have the money. So, of course, when we went to war, which we weren't expecting, mm-hmm. you know, unlike Germany, they've been preparing for God knows how long, it was a bit of a surprise. We were caught with our pants down to a certain extent. And except for Soviet, I think England is those who took the hugest burden. And let's not forget the Poles, poor Poland. I mean, they were absolutely right. destroyed yeah. and Czechoslovakia but we mustn't forget that because in fact I was having a conversation the other day about that a debate about the Warsaw uprising and how they felt that they were let down by the British and I turned around and said hold on a minute hold on a minute I don't know all the details but we did within 48 hours after they invaded you we declared war on Germany so we did stand by we didn't physically help them in the uprising but we could have done more diplomatically anyway so Churchill You're saying they weren't the best of friends as they're portrayed to be post-war. But but we also know they were united by a common goal of beating Soviet Russia. They were terrified of them. Absolutely. uh, So so the excuse for the Americans to hijack as many Germans they could get their hands on is exactly the Red Scare, right? Yeah. And that's a red threat. So they were legitimizing it with Operation Paperclip and all that with that. But uh, what about the British? What's their approach here then? What do you mean their approach to, to extracting? I think there were deals done. So I think there was a little bit of... Well, let's, before we go post-45, let's go from the bunker. So we've got the bunker. Yeah, let's do that. Let's start there. Um, So Borman, where was Borman? He was last sighted on the night of the 1st into the morning of the 2nd of May, 1945. Mm -hmm. He supposedly left the bunker um, with um, Stumfeger, and they were last seen supposedly by Russian soldiers and, and Germans saying they saw their moonlit faces on the ground after they'd taken a shell from a tank near the bridge. Uh, now, first of all, you have to say, what was the intention of those witnesses? Now, my bone about this, when people brush it under the carpet, when at that time, of course, it burning Berlin must have been horrific. I mean, bombs mm. going off everywhere, burning, running Russians. Russians were scary, scary, scary True. Uh, all over the place. But the place was an absolute, it was hell on earth. Now, when the things calmed down a few days later, they knew that somebody supposedly found a diary of Borman, yeah. although it has been mentioned. It reminds me of the passport that they found in 9-11. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh the, the, the unburnable one. Yeah, isn't that yeah. amazing? Or, or the crazy guy, was it in Germany recently, where they found something in the car, uh, his uh, passport in the car? Oh, uh, yeah, they, the, the passports, absolutely. It seems to be a trend. So they, f- they all come from the same agency. <laughs> but did you also know that it was the Israelis that took over producing European passports, apparently? I heard that. I'm not sure. Somebody should check on that. Right. Not surprising. So it's coming from the Israel factories of the passports. So Mossad, yeah. Very good. Yeah. Okay. But, but Borman. Um, going back. Yeah, back to Borman. So days later, a diary's found. Now, supposedly these bodies were buried now the place was like a bit like a building site i suppose you know tanks cut up the ground mm-hmm. uh it's mud it's may the weather's shitty what oh sorry am i allowed to say that on the radio um they're all grown up i'm sure this is the internet no problem i apologize mm-hmm. um so the ground is we're not talking they're not in deep forests here so they know where the location of supposedly within two or 300 square metres of what Bormann was last seen with Stumpfegger. Now, I have a real issue with this. 
We had the Americans looking for Bormann's corpse. We had the British looking for Bormann's corpse. We had the Red Army looking for Bormann's corpse. Nobody found anything. Mm. And as I've said, soldiers know how to dig out. Come on, they dig trenches. Mm. You think they're not going to find a body that's been hastily buried when they're being hit by shells. So nothing could be found, absolutely. Not only that, yeah. but there was conflicting witness reports, as with many of these uh, guys, uh, where they were contradicting each other. So um, the whole thing stinks. I think actually our guest, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Critical Mass uh, when we had him on, uh, I think he actually accounted a little for this. At least he wrote a lot about this chapter. So so we all know it's it's bonkers. We all know that believe what you want, but that's not the true story of how what happened to Bormann. I, I mean, with Dr. Stumfeld okay, out fine. there in the woods. Yeah. Right. Now, here it comes in. Now, when in, I think it was about 2006, when I started cross-referencing. So I found, going back to my investigation on the children of Odessa, mm. I started to focus more on Bormann because it really started to almost irritate me because it was like, wow, and he's there again, he's there again. So I started to cross-reference the possibility, could he have been here? Because I would hear voices that he was here. Mm. And I was working at the time, had this amazing young journalist uh, working with me in Argentine, and we agreed that we were going to gather all the information we could possibly get on on Borman. And, and this amazing journalist was uh, Abel Basti? No, 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 no. Another, it's a, a mutual friend of ours, a okay. young chap who was working for me on supposedly in, we were in development for this television series of Children of Odessa. And of course, we've got the story of Operation James Bond. Now, I was familiar with the JB book that was written by Christopher Crichton. That was his pseudonym. His real name was John Ainsworth Davis. And he was a former British naval agent. He was probably Churchill's number one assassin double, sometimes triple agent for the British uh, services. And he was working immediately under Commander Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming of the James Bond. We also have in there Desmond Morton, who Desmond Morton, who was the head of secret intelligence section five. Um, actually, there's a, there's a, there's the, a very good book written by Jill Bennett on Desmond Morton. Is that like CIA of Britain? Yes, he was. Well, actually, it was one. It was a section that was so secret that even the other sections didn't know about it. <laughs> the section. Uh, you laugh. You may laugh, but you'll be amazed uh, how the deep state, you know, how you have these covert I know, agents. but it's so childish. They're like big boys, so, you know. They're so childish. Well, you say know. that, but you say that, but you remember the thing is everything's compartmentalized, and this is why we have the problem that we have today, Al. Yeah, I agree. Can't access. Uh, yes. So nice that they had a paper trail in the old days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Today you don't get that. There you go. <laughs> so there is no straight paper trail. And this is when people say, oh, this is another conspiracy theory. No, you have to realize they have a reason. When you have agents like that, agencies that are covert in a covert agency, yeah. they're there for a reason. And the reason is to hide information, change information. And cover the tracks up, yeah. clean up. And hide responsibility, of course. Of course, absolutely. And mm. when it's compartmentalized, it's like when people talk about 9-11. They say, well, how could it be possible you would need 
3,000 people to all be participant in this conspiracy? Yeah, but it's a bit like when you're building a weapon. You have workers in one thing and they build this little square piece of steel. It's got three holes in it. They don't know yeah, what... The, the go-to example is the Manhattan Project. It was top secret, thousands of people. It worked. Well, there you go. They don't know what it's for. They don't yep. know what it's for. Yep. Yeah, so the man... Well, of course... So my point is, you throw me on the Manhattan. Now I want to talk about the tube allies, but I won't do that because the tube allies is a really juicy one. We'll have to save that for another day. Mm -hmm. So um, they never found the body. We have, um, I think what happened was there was this very uncomfortable competition between the USA. Churchill was fuming with the Americans, what they did to us. They screwed us over big time. Mm. And when we gave the, they invited the Tubewilers project to merge with the Manhattan project, Churchill jumped at it because we couldn't afford to do it. Mm. And what did the Americans do? They took our people in with the Canadians, but they were our people, our project took as much, they couldn't have done it without us. And you know, nobody mentions this because the Americans like to save the world, but they've got no health insurance. <laughs> they have no health insurance, save the world. And the moment that they had what they needed, they booted the British off the project. Churchill was fuming, mm. fuming. Now, there are some things I can't discuss on here tonight. Maybe two years down the line, I can discuss them. But there are reasons that I can't because it would really jeopardize what I'm working on at the moment and not just myself. Um, but I can say this. One has to consider when Churchill became now at the end of the war in 1945 Churchill was the hero of the day he was the man we'll fight them on the beaches we'll fight I mean he was a hero everybody loved Churchill uh, still for many people yes right he should have been there was the elections came up he should automatically have been voted in to be the premier minister again mm. what did he do he sabotaged his chances of being elected and he took a back seat Now, he took a back seat for a deliberate reason, and then he came back to... Now, on both occasions when Churchill was prime minister, in the first time of British history, he also took the premier minister position of defence. So he was minister of defence and he was prime minister. It never happened before. You'd have a prime minister and you'd have your minister of defence and your minister of foreign affairs, blah, blah. So he didn't trust anyone else to run the national security state? Well... It's not he didn't trust. He had an agenda. And that's what I'm not going to discuss about at the moment. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Right, fast forward. So I believe that John Ainsworth Davis, working under the command of Ian Fleming, Desmond Morton and Churchill, went in with a group of British commanders uh, with kayaks and they went in and they rescued Martin Borman. Martin Borman knew it was going to happen. He'd been contact previously. And we're going to all the details now because some people probably know it. And he was extracted. Now, John Ainsworth Davis, I wanted to question John on dynamics. Uh, of hang on, we, we have to recap for the benefit of the listeners. Okay. Davis, this chap Davis, he's a British intelligence guy. He's working under directly under Golding and uh, Churchill, you say? No, Golding, that's another subject we'll put to the side, but Golding was another commander that they worked with together. Yeah. No, with Ian Fleming. With Ian Fleming, it, yeah. Ian Fleming commanded the Operation James Bond and they extracted him and handed him over. Now, I question, he wrote this book in 1996. Now, 
the book, which was published supposedly as a novel, he didn't, but Simon and Schuster put it out as a novel, was a bestseller in France and Germany. Let's fast forward now to Nuremberg. Now, we have the Nuremberg Charles in 1946, okay? 45, mm. 46. So what was the objective that, of the Nuremberg Trials, Al? We know what that was, and the Nuremberg Trials was set up. It was a, it was a kangaroo court, really. But anyway, it was supposedly uh, a trials proceedings against the criminals of war, and the Allies were overseeing it. Now, principally, the Americans were in there, and we've got all these judges and all these captured Nazis and whatever sitting there in trial. Now, Borman's not there. We know that. Borman's not there. But also we noticed that we've got a few, they have a few problems that they don't like to talk about. Klaus Barbie disappears. Adolf Eichmann disappears. All these chaps seem to disappear. They sort of get out of their, when they're in custody of all these soldiers. I don't know how this happens. (laughs) And so we have... These symbolic hangings. Now, let's give you an example. Hess, all right, he died many years later. Hess should never have been put on trial to start with. No. Hess, and people say, oh, are you a Nazi sympathizer? No, I'm not. I'm a human sympathizer. And that man Sorry should... to interject here. Uh, yeah. But uh, every guest I have on about this topic, I always ask them about the Hess riddle. Because I can't fathom why, what did he know that was so dangerous that they had to kill him? The, the British intelligence, everybody knows that they did it. So what, what's your, uh, if you could just take a little detour. And, I think and he, he, you give us okay. your. Who took over Hess's job? Well, Bormann, obviously. There you go. Who knew Hess intimately was Bormann. And who did Bormann know intimately? Hess, they knew each other because Bormann worked under Hess. Okay. Right. So when Hess came over to Scotland, and I believe in very good faith, to try and uh, stop a war, um, Borman took his place. And do you think Borman manipulated him to go? Could have done, yes. I think. I think Borman would be thrilled to bits that he was gone. So Borman manipulated him to, yes, you yes. know, to get, get out of favour with Hitler. Typical Borman. I actually believe that Hess had a conversation with Churchill in London mm. before the extraction of Martin Borman. And to get the bones and the nature, you know, they're very clever when they when they're going to approach somebody to work for them and see if they can switch sides. They they always do a psychological portrait. They do an analysis of is that person? Can we bend him? Would he do? What does he like? Can we buy him off? Mm. No, you can't buy him off. So I believe that Hess knew too much. I don't believe Churchill got rid of him. I think Churchill had a, a there was a mutual respect between the two men. And and most officers you talk to feel really bad what happened to Hess. So anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the Soviets eventually said, let the poor guy go. But obviously they couldn't let him go because he knew something. And I, I, I think you're onto it. I think it is connected to Borman. Maybe they were now, afraid. There's a connection to Borman. Yeah. And I think what happened was there was a possibility that Hess could convince Borman to go into the British custody or go with the Brits rather than go with the Russians. Yeah, but I'm talking about the the murder of Hess uh, in the what eighties. Ah, oh, Hess was he was murdered, absolutely murdered. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Even then, it was. Yeah, and I, yeah, but Sorry. I, I think if he knew, if Churchill contacted him, discussing Borman with him, maybe it's something he knew there. Maybe he knew that Borman survived. I don't know, but they had to kill him for some reason. 
Well, of course he knew Bormann's... Uh, well, sorry, I'm saying, of course, uh, I believe he knew. Well, he was in jail from before the war. Yeah, so. but we also have to remember that Hess, it was just days before he was going to be released that he hangs himself, yeah. days before he's going to be released. I mean, anyway, poor chap. And he I'm wasn't sure. in a health to hang himself. We all know this. Uh, yeah, and you don't hang yourself four foot from the floor <laughs> as well. Do no. you? I mean, come on. He needed help, at least. So, yeah. Yeah, you need. Yeah, yeah. and it's it, no, it's not going to happen. But I think actually it's proven that it was British intelligence. But the question is, isn't who was uh, the perpetrators? We know who did it. Why? But why exactly? Because they were worried he was going to go. Remember, when he goes out into to his freedom, you're going to have people like you or me looking for him to ask to talk. Mm. You know, and you're going to say, well, he served his time. He's allowed to talk now. But it's 50 years since the war. What possibly could he say that they were so afraid of 50 years after the war? Well, it's a bit shocking to think that, unfortunately, the Simon Wiesenthal Centre today is still crying about, and they have good reason, because let me make it clear, they did some wicked, wicked, wicked things to the Jews in the camps. I mean, so I'm not... Not just Jews, I've got, not, But that's what I'm just saying. And this is what I'm saying. Okay. The Simon Wiesenthal... I'm talking about the Simon Wiesenthal Centre. Yeah. And this is the sad thing. The Simon Wiesenthal Centre only talk about the Jews. They don't talk about the homosexuals. They don't talk about the Romanies, mm. the gypsies. Union workers. You know, it's like you always hear, there's six million Jews. It should be like 20 million, I don't know what the numbers are, of innocent people that were tortured and murdered during that war. Yeah. by both sides yeah. so I'm, what I'm saying I'm just highlighting the Jews on that so but the shocking thing 50 years later will be and this is not good Jews I'm talking about Zionists that have been doing deals with doing business utilizing funds for these businesses that were taken confiscated from many Jews as well mm. so that's a bombshell isn't it if you find out... Uh, I think a bigger bombshell is that they would do business with the Bormann people, Bormann corporations. But that's... Well, it's, the same thing. it's the same thing. It's it, it's Hitler. It's money coming from the Nazi coffers. Yeah. Mm. Bormann was the one that managed it. Bormann was the one that had the keys. He had the codes. He had everything. He had the access. Yeah. So let's fast forward. Let's go forward now. So Bormann's out. And I believe... What happened was the Americans knew that we had Borman, but we also knew that they had Klaus Barbie. Mm. So now Klaus Barbie was sentenced to death at the Nuremberg trials. And the ally, one of our allies, was France. And France the, were the ones that really were put at the hands of Klaus Barbie and the torture of the French resistance and, and French civilians. Uh, I mean, the most appalling. Yeah, they wanted to sacrifice him. They wanted him to pay, right? Damn right. But he, he should have paid because he was a total psychopath. So mm. what happens? The Americans took Barbie and they put him into their own intelligence services. He was recruited by the CIA and he was sent to... Central America and South America to look for Il Che because they were so paranoid about communism. Mm. So they can't admit that. So I think there was almost like a, a silent deal like we know the British have taken Borman, but we've got Barbie and we've got Reinhard Gellin, Reinhard Gellin, remember? Mm. Mm. Um, so we're not going to, okay, we all shut up. And we've also got the the Operation Paperclips. We've got all the brain power. We've got Werner von Braun who who my close friend and colleague worked with, uh, Dr. Carol Rosin, who worked closely with Werner von Braun. And of course, Werner von Braun as well was a scientist. They're scientists. They're not 
shooting people in the camps. They're not stripping young girls and setting dogs on them. They're, they're well, but some of the scientists they took were actually also war criminals. Not all of them. Of course, were, yeah. of course they were. But not all of them. And, and people believed in the beginning it was like hundreds. No, they got thousands, thousands yeah. just in Operation Paperclip, notwithstanding did. Operation Gladio. Yes, Gladio. You know, the stay behind in NATO. Uh, That's and, right. Uh, and like you say, the entire European CIA was run. Of course it was. <laughs> it, was just, it was the Nazi spies. They just got a new badge. But the thing is, the Americans did a brain drain. Now, let, I have mentioned about this on air, but it's worth it for those that don't know. Yeah. When the French discovered that Klaus Barbie, war criminal, butcher of Lyon, yeah. absolute bastard, killer, psychopath, yeah. was actually in the employ You know, he wasn't like a captive. He was given a rank and he was given money and he was given freedom to go off and look for Che Guevara and all the other communists that mm. they were so terrified of. When the French discovered this, they were they couldn't believe it because this was a betrayal to the Nuremberg trial. What was the Nuremberg trial for? And the Nuremberg trial was about justice, but it wasn't justice. It was all a fake. It was a whitewash. And people like Hess and the people you saw up there, half of them were murdered in there. The hanging, you see them, you know, they say, oh, he committed suicide, they killed them all. They shut them up because obviously men, when they've got the life flashing before your eyes, you're going to talk. So some of them, they didn't want to talk. Oh, well, the Americans have got him and the British have got him. So And they cut shut. us off before he could uh, complete yeah. his rant. Yeah, absolutely. But I think they need, that. this is the whole point, you know, Hess was needed for other things. So that's also why, um, you know, he kept, but anyway, he shouldn't have been there. But um, I was going to recap stuff here because Operation James Bond actually was the name they gave uh, the extraction of Bormann, the British intelligence That's right. from That's Germany right. to Britain. Now, yes. And John Davis was one of these guys who did this. And yep. He was yep. the one who published it afterwards. Well, he didn't. He published it. And in fact, the um, the note on the back cover um says op jb is the astonishing account of how bormann was smuggled out of berlin right. by a hand-picked commando team ordered by major desmond morton naval intelligence chief approved by churchill and roosevelt it was a mission so dangerous and so sensitive that its secrets can only be revealed now but, but roosevelt was dead uh, at that point um well the thing was they planned the extraction of Bormann. So he was taken out in 1945. So Yeah, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if it was Dulles who did it on behalf of Roosevelt and Roosevelt didn't even know. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Uh, well, we don't, you see, this is the thing, we, we, we don't really, uh, how, can, how can we tell? We can. And the thing is, Roosevelt died only a couple of weeks after the extraction. When did he die? What's the date? He died a few days before they entered the bunker. Um, oh, yes, before. Yes, he died just before. So that's interesting, isn't it? it Maybe is. they got rid of him because he knew. I've, I've launched that as a conspiracy hypothesis, actually. I've, I've said that because Roosevelt was one of those guys who wanted the Nuremberg. Roosevelt was much more left-leaning than the others. They, in fact, they were yes. afraid that he was going to cooperate with the Soviets. He was too friendly to the Soviets, and he had real leftists yes. on board. So my conspiracy hypothesis is that the Solomon and Cromwell faction, the crypto-fascists, the Wall Street gang, they got panicked 
They took out Roosevelt very quietly in a soft coup. They put in the guy Truman, the very guy who founded yes. NSA and CIA, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then Dulles, who knew Borman from uh, before, yeah. wanted Dulles knew. I mean, we know that they laundered money through Dulles. So Dulles knew the value of Borman. He probably recognized himself in Borman. So Dulles would have no problem signing off on. In fact, Dulles did sign off on Operation Paperclip and all that. Yes. So that's my conspiracy hypothesis that, yeah, they had to go through with Nuremberg because that was already set up by Roosevelt. But they turned it into a charade, of course, because at this point they didn't care about the Nazis. They cared about the Soviets and they wanted as many Nazis as they could grab. What I didn't know until I spoke with you is that the same thinking was going on in Britain. Yeah. They too wanted, obviously, Nazis, uh, which is probably why they did this then. So well, we've got we've got more reasons that we wanted him than the, than the things. But anyway, we I think back, yeah. Yeah? You want to go into those reasons? We can't now, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and there is documentary evidence to it, so but I can't. But you can speak of it at a later time, right? Oh, certainly. I'd like to. So we'll yes. have you back for that. But uh, could you tell us what Operation Christopher Robin is? Okay, no. Christopher Robin was one of many names of John Ainsworth Davis, Christopher Crichton, Jean Christophe, um, Christopher Robin. These were all code names that he used during his operations during World War II. But he also went on to work behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. So John Ainsworth Davis went on to actually continue to be an agent for the British intelligence services. Mm. And I became close to him from 2006. And we actually... Um, I was very fortunate that he confided a lot in me and we even set up a company together hmm. in 2013, um, an actual formal company at Company's House, uh, with, the, uh, with the agenda to, to actually look after this history and publish his memoirs and his version of events. Funny enough, with my relationship with John, obviously we had lots of conversations in confidence off the record. And in those conversations, I questioned a lot about you have to read Operation James Bond to, to understand what what happens after the operation. Mm. And I said to him, John, it can't have happened like this because Borman would have had to go there and there. And he all, he called me Amy because I use a, a pseudonym, Amy de Crichton, okay. uh, which was a gift from him, Amy, friend of Crichton. <laughs> okay. And um, to which I published with him, I co-published a book with John Ainsworth Davis called The Mountbatten Report. Um, that actually has been taken off, and I wouldn't ask him to go at the moment because I, it's been revised because unfortunately it was we had a few problems with the publisher, mm. so at the moment it's in in suspension. Um, and I said to him, you know, John, it can't have happened because I think he would have gone there. And he said to me, Amy, he believes that Borman did go to the Nuremberg trials undercover, mm-hmm. and he was taken there by British intelligence, obviously to give information, probably sit behind a big glass screen wow. when they're interrogating people to give information and say, yeah, that he's lying or that's true or oh. ask this one that. Um, other people say, how is that possible that that Borman could have got away with being present at Nuremberg? And I said, well, exactly that reason, because not everybody knew what he looked like. Not everybody Plus was he was protected by intelligence. That would be easy. Come on. Of course he was. I mean, come on, not only that. All these people supposedly hung themselves in their cells. Yeah. And, I mean, it doesn't. the security seemed very lax. You can't have it both ways. And Borman could give payback to people like, um, you know, his enemies. Yes. 
Yeah, well, I wasn't. Yeah, Hess was crushed long ago. I was more thinking of. Um, yes. Oh, the flight uh, chief of uh, Air Force, oh, Goering. William Goering. Goering, horrible man. Yes, yeah. Goering. So it would be. You wouldn't need much incentives for Bormann to do that. No, you wouldn't. And also, if he was well protected, and he's also they're on a mission, they've got an agreement, and at the end of the day, we have a very strong sense of survival. And, um, you know, this is why I don't believe Hitler killed himself. I think Hitler was too much of a coward to actually <laughs> put a bullet in his head. You've got to be very brave, you know, to shoot yourself. You've got to be brave. Yeah, but people are, you know, this is a double thing because on the one hand, you could say he was too fanatical to, to kill himself because he wanted the stuff to go on, right? Right. So anyway, I said to John, I said, you know, I'd called him Christopher. Mm. That chap that you've got in your book as who was a double in, in the United Kingdom after, that can't be because Borman was X and X at this date in Brazil. And he said to me, Amy, I don't know. I'm only putting what I assume and what I was told. Mm. I can only document what happened in the operation because I was there. But what happened to Borman afterwards in the post-war years, I only was given information on a need-to-know basis. Yeah. So... I don't know. And he actually agreed. He said, Lawrence, you know, your theory about that works out, but you found more information. So he wasn't saying that he was absolutely sure. All he can say was the Operation James Bond did take place. He was a witness to it. He published his version of events and he then published what information was given to him as to Borman. Because here's another thing. They're going to feed him false information after the war to make him think that Foreman's dead. They took him to a grave because then it, it chops the line off again. You have to keep chopping the lines down. Mm. Um, I have had somebody come forward to me actually a few years ago. I tracked her down by sheer luck. And she was involved with uh, Milton Shulman. Uh, Milton Shulman, you, you know who that is? I have no idea. Okay. Milton Shulman's very important because Milton Shulman actually gives credibility to John Ainsworth Davis. Okay. And he was actually a former intelligence officer. He was uh, Canadian. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to be a very important film and theatre critic in the UK. And he also served in his war service. And he was approached about John Ainsworth Davis's accounts. And he thoroughly researched him and found him to be legitimate. And he actually writes the fact that John Ainsworth Davis was legitimate. Mm. In fact, the plot gets thicker. We're going off on lots of tangents, so I hope the audience forgive me, because this is a conversation. We're all sitting here having a conversation. And as long as it's interesting stuff, by all means. Well, I hope it is. It is. Okay. <laughs> so the the point is that Milton Shulman knew... There's a writer called Nigel West. Are you familiar with Nigel West? I'm afraid not. Right, well, anybody who reads my books, okay. Well, he's, he's an international public author. Okay. And Nigel West, his real name is Rupert Allison. Nigel West is one of the premier spy writers. Now, Nigel West has written so many books on the intelligence services. Do you mean fiction or, or, or document? No, he's, he's, a, he's a military historian and journalist. He's also a, a conservative former M- a politician. He was a former British politician. Tories, I assume. Conservative, mm-hmm. yeah. So you can't just dish the Tories. They're not all that bad. <laughs> They're in power. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not as clean cut as that. It's not as clean cut as that. Mm-hmm. You've got the, always got the goodies and the baddies yeah. in all parties. Um, so his specialisation is actually espionage. Now, he's written many, many books. Mm. It's interesting because... I was told that Rupert Allison had written that John Angel Davis was a charlatan. 
okay? Mm. And he discredited, and even in a book, he wrote some book about discrediting spies or, or you know, people that pretending to be spies. Mm. And he wrote these awful things about John Ainsworth Davis. So I contacted Alison and I said, you know, you say, he said, yes, he was definitely a charlatan. He was definitely a charlatan. Where's the effect of? Okay, I'm not quoting exactly. Mm. I don't have the email in front That's of me. That's okay. And then he, then he goes on to say that, no, because I was paid, basically, by Milton Shulman to investigate John Ainsworth Davis, and we came to the conclusion he was a charlatan. Now, that was a blatant lie because I came across documents written by Milton Shulman that he was the one with John Ainsworth Davis that offered Nigel West a £1,000. It was a lot of money then in the 90s mm-hmm. to prove that John was a fraud and they couldn't do it. Wow. So. Then you have to look at who is Nigel West, who is Rupert Allen. Very nice chap. Sounds like a spook. I have to be honest. More than a spook. How many authors in the world get to lecture about spying at Langley? Hmm. How many authors in the world get invited to lecture about spying to the former KGB? And that's what you've got to ask. So I've come to the conclusion that... The books that Nigel writes are written by various people, and he's actually working for probably the big company. And he's on an agenda because to blatantly lie like that. Yeah. But didn't you find a lot of uh, documents in an attic? Okay. Now, the documents in the attic, this is really a program on itself. While I was, I was in, because John Ainsworth Davis was also a member of COP, well, he was a floater, and that is the Combined Operations Pilotage Parties. Mm-hmm. And they were a small covert British group set up by Mountbatten, and they went in little canoes called cockles, and they were the ones that went and did these really brave raids um, in little canoes to go and sabotage foreign, you know, occupied ports, etc. John at some time was at COP because he had to learn how to do silent water approaches onto coastlines because he was a spy. And while he was with COP, there was an organization set up called the COP Heroes Association. Now, I had a problem with John saying, John, we have to prove that you're legitimate because the biggest problem we have here is people say that you're a fraud. Some of them even said he didn't serve. (laughs) So what happens? Along comes the COP organization. The COP organization were doing an event, and John flatly refused to go. And I said, you are going, because if you don't go, I'm not working with you anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, but, you know, I'm going on a Zimmer frame, bless him, and I don't look smart. I said, listen, we need you. I need you at that event to show you are legitimate, because I have nothing for your credibility. Mm-hmm. He hummed and hard. Finally, we got him to go. Mm. Um, and he went, and it was down on Hailing Island, and this was in 2012. And there you have John Ainsworth Davis sitting with the former head chief of staff of Britain next to Lady Patricia Mountbatten, who is Mountbatten's daughter, and five or six other agents from COP. And with all his medals on, one is the Legion d'Honneur, the Cavalier of France, that was given to him by Charles de Gaulle. and his other medals. Now, security at these events, particularly post 9-11, is so high, there is no way in a, listen, I come from a service family, there is no way in a million years a fraud would be sitting with Lady Patricia Mountbatten, who was the daughter of Mountbatten of Burma, who was the commander that John 
was supposedly working for. Oh. Everybody's aware of Operation Day, JB. If he, they know he's Christopher Crichton, do you really think they're going to allow him there? No. So we've got that. I actually posted that on the internet. John Ainsworth Davis sitting there, and I put a ring around him and his medals. And here's the man sitting here with the chief of staff, former chief, the chief of staff of the British services, and these other agents. So they let him. They let him sit there. Well, of course they did. And he's even mentioned in there. He's even on the COP website as being John Ainsworth Davis, an agent. But they don't give him a rank because he's a floater, because he passed through COP because he had to learn about silent water approaches. Now, Harold Golding is the man that trained him. Now, when I went on to this, I then went on to help this organization after John's death mm. in John's memory because they were having problems erecting a memorial. The Prince of Wales is the patron of that organization. So this is very establishment. And I was invited to be part of the team. And they wrote a lovely newsletter saying we're very happy to have Lawrence DeMello. So what I'm saying is I'm not completely renegade. You know, I'm not completely out in the deep water. Mm. And I helped with this organization. And because my name went on there, this lady saw my name and maybe a radio interview and she reached out because she needed help mm-hmm. because her father died uh, of cancer in 96. He had never known what his father did in World War II. Her grandfather, this is the grandfather, died in 1945, about five weeks after the war, and they knew he had a DSO, but they knew nothing else. They have a photo of him outside Buckingham Palace with her father, they have an old parfait newsreel of him being presented by the king. But apart from that, nothing else. Mm. 2010, she is cleaning out her mother's attic. and She comes across an attache case with over 700 top secret and most secret British Royal Naval Intelligence files wow. from during the war years. So it was locked. She asked her mother if she knew about her mother, didn't know anything about it. So obviously the widow had left it there, but also her father knew nothing about it. Mm. So it was a skipped generation. Nobody had known of this. And because the grandmother had died, they were going through her things. They really knew to keep secrets back then. So Yeah, they did. Now, yeah. here's, an, here's a question. You see, I know for a fact, and I'm sure many people know, that agents or anybody that's working does not remove files from their desk. You don't take them home unless they're sort of admin stuff. But you're not permitted to remove most secret and top secret files in one big attache case and take them home and leave them with the wife. It doesn't happen. So they were there for a reason. Mm. So she went through these files and basically she looked at them and she wasn't quite sure. She had been researching on her grandfather and everything came at short stop. So she reached out to two journalists. One, she reached out who was connected to Mountbatten. He's a BBC journalist. Mm-hmm. And she reached out to me for help to mainly, not about the documents, but mainly because she was hurt because we were coming up to the D-Day celebrations and all these memorials and biographies and everything and all these heroes being remembered and her grandfather's name was nowhere to be found. Mm. Even on his grave, it did not even have his DSO, his mentioned dispatches or even his surname, Harry. Not Harold, Commander Harold Wilkinson Golding, DSO, but she knew it was real because she had a document. So she was wondering why is there this silence? Is that how it's... She's saying, well, why? Wait, 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 wait. So, but she didn't quite get how deep and dark and murky this was. Mm. So 
so she contacted me. I was very fortunate. And we, we've become great friends. And we are working together on a book that's actually been delayed because I was taken ill last year. So we're like a year behind. But also we're behind because what started off, she thought, was just going to be a biographic book about her grandfather and why he should be remembered. When we started to analyze the documents, we started to see a lot of very interesting things. So interesting, in fact, that we discovered that he was not only the he was the man that landed on more occupied coastlines than any officer of any other service. He made 72 successful forays onto occupied beaches as an agent, wow. taking in and taking out agents. He was the man we believe brought the surrender papers back from Archon. He was the man that was involved in Operation James Bond as well, because he was together put, with the Davis. I believe he was made commander of coastal convoys 17 days before the extraction to make sure that the waterways were clear. So, so here we have a substantiation then. Yeah, we do. And we also have, which is even more beautiful, and I know a lot of your Americans are going to know this, um, the catastrophic raid on Dieppe in 1942 by British and Canadian forces, where the Germans were waiting for us and we were ambushed, supposedly because we lost the cover of night of 15 minutes. This man, Commander Harold Golding, was also the commander in charge of the assault on Blue Beach. He was the flotilla commander. Mm. And nobody mentions him anywhere. We then discover that he actually died in a little hospital in Scotland five weeks after the war hmm. and only days after writing a letter to his wife saying, I walked down to the phone box. I needed to check with so-and-so. I'm going to write about Cameron one day. And within days, he's dead. His wife was refused a war widow's pension. She was given it when she was 85 years of age, and it was not backdated. They lived in almost poverty. He was buried with no rank or name on his grave, and he was wiped, basically, from history. And there's a very good reason. And he was the head of the SBU. Hmm. So then you start to say, why was this man removed? What did he know and when did he know it? That's the question. Well, the beautiful thing is that the files that we have cannot be found anywhere in the National Archive or anywhere. And we were actually, it was quite funny because I got Jill to do a couple of radio things just to talk about, because sometimes you have to reveal stuff just to protect. We had two raids, mm. laptops stolen, whatever. And I said, Jill, the documents have to be put somewhere. So yes, I said, Jill, they have to go. And we actually had to hide them. <laughs> I have to be careful what I say here. But anyway, they were hidden in, in a deposit box in a foreign embassy. And I hope you took many copies. Well, obviously, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're doing now. So they are secured for the future. They're absolutely secured. But we actually did, we got a contact from the MOD and a request who was, and I can't mention the name here, but he was a very important person. When I say uh, he was also involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, he's, he's also recent. And he was also the head of the same unit that Commander Golding was head of. Mm. And he contacted and I said, listen, We have to be very careful with the MOD. I'm sure it's all in good faith. And he was fascinated to see these files. So we had a bit of a briefing and I said, okay, you can just show him that and that. Some things we cannot show uh, at this time, at the moment. Mm. And he was so bowled away. He said, oh my goodness, we need an archivist now. The MOD need an archivist. And we've discovered more about, we didn't even know how these units were set up. And these, 
even historical values show how these units were set up, these secret units, Mount Batten, everybody's in there. And they said, oh, we'd like to take, she said, oh, they'd like to take the files off to the MOD with an archivist. So I said, sorry, no, it's not happening. When I put my foot down on this, of course, that person then sort of said to my partner uh, in crime, oh, don't work with her because she's a conspiracy theorist, you know, distance yourself from her, basically, because I put the, the kibosh on those documents going out of our hands and going anywhere near the MOD. Not yet. Not until we've revealed them all. Mm. So we're very, very lucky. But it ties in the chances of those coming yeah. into my yeah. reach with John Ainsworth David. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Divine providence, if you ask me. Probably. So there is stuff there. I am very fortunate. There's so much. Stuff. It's like this conversation. We started to talk about Borman and we've gone off. It's like, a, unfortunately, it's like a, a mushroom bomb, isn't it? It's just mushroom goes off. And, um, because everything is connected. I really apologize. I apologize about that because I forget that I, I'm actually, I just feel like we're having a chat. That's great. That's how we do it here. But no, no, but we're still on track because we're going to continue with Borman. But I just wanted to get a little more light on this part of the story, which is very important. Well, well can, I, can I ask your listeners? I've given them... Yep. Please, uh, after all this jabbering, you say this woman's going off. Google as well, Commander Harold Wilkinson Golding, mm. DSO, or Commander Harold Golding, DSO. If you go, I do have a very silly little YouTube collection of a couple of videos and stuff up there. And you'll find it actually on my Lawrence DeMello on her YouTube channel. And I set up a little tiny teaser. It was actually set up for press because we did actually get – the Ministry of Defence finally to come and do a ceremony to recognise him. Wow. Yes, but they don't Based know. Based on these documents? No, I didn't show them all the documents because if they saw the documents, they're not going to do it. But we got it done oh, in okay. 2015 and we had a bomber flying over, throwing poppies out and everything wow. to remember Harold Golding. And now there is a monument to him down in Hailing Island, but we had to be very careful. And we were also offered to put something in the Memorial Garden, which is uh, the National Arbitorium uh, or Arboretum or whatever they call it, mm. um, in this special military garden. Then they got a bit silly after that because already the teaser came out and the press actually came back quite hard on that. Are you suggesting? What are you suggesting? You, mm. You're suggesting Commander Golding was involved with James Bond. So we backed off a little bit. You've got to give him, it's like riding a horse, you know, you pull the reins a bit, you give it a bit. Mm. And you have to be careful how you do it. But if you Google him, Commander Harold Golding, you will see, you'll see my lovely co-author, Jill Golding, uh, with a blue plaque. We even got him a blue plaque on the cottage where he was on Hailing Island. And you'll see all the roles that he had in World War Two. But we are now progressing, the investigation has come to the conclusion that, in fact, he was assassinated wow. in August 1945 to silence him. He knew too much. He yeah. knew too much. The man is another one, the man who knew too much. Why, why didn't they kill Ian Fleming then? Was he too high up in the system? No, because Fleming was all part of the organisation because they know they used it to their benefit. He wasn't going to go off. and I mean, he was very clever how he did the stuff, the you know, all these little secrets that revolved in the revealed in the james bond movies about that's uh that's sanctioned secrets that's thing they want to let out maybe or yeah yeah lots of little things i, I mean I, i've i've suspected for a long time that specter is actually bowman's organization you know well there you go you know it, 
it points to that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you look, there are so many things. There were also, just going back, for the Americans listening, Doc, what's his name? Cameron. Donald Cameron, the psychiatrist, Scottish psychiatrist, and Henderson, they go off to the USA and they set up the MK Ultra program. Mm. So we know all about that. What do we do? Going back to Golding, we start looking at his death certificate. We start analyzing it and blowing it up. And there were two versions. And who do we find on the certificate of one of the surgeons that wrote on that? It was somebody that was being financed by the Rockefeller Foundation mm. uh, on research with the guy that set up the MK Ultra program. Mm. So, was Golding part of the MK Ultra when he writes in his last letter to his wife, "I'm going to talk about Cameron Monday"? Mm. Is that who he's referring to? So it's like, uh oh, there's one more thing. We have to finish this book. Oh no, this has come out. And Jill's always saying, "Well, we can do that in a second book." I said, "You know what? You have one shot at this." And. And has rambled about something uh, that could be MK Ultra ish in the Nuremberg trials when they stopped him. Who? Sorry, sorry. That's a little. Uh, you know, Rudolf Hass. Yes. He talked about uh, something that reminds me of MK Ultra when they shut him up in the Nuremberg trials when he started to talk yeah. about this. Look at what he was uh, ranting about. Yeah, weird stuff. Mind control. Yeah, mind control and stuff like that. Yeah. So, well, the thing is, it's very possible that Hess had a couple of run-ins because they said that he was not stable mentally and he was like having almost like panic attacks. It was almost like he wanted to escape, wasn't it, from them? <laughs> I don't blame him. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'd do it on a on a, on a a little prop plane across the Atlantic on my own, but there you go. He did it. He was extremely brave for what he did. Very uh, courageous. But let's recap, because there's many new names and stuff, like Operation James Bond. Let's just be clear about that. This was I think anybody, anybody that can is interested. It's absolutely important. You must go and get this book, Operation James Bond. Uh, it actually says on the cover, it says, The Last Great Secret of the Second World War. Fact or fiction, decide for yourself. And this was published by your friend John Davis under a pseudonym. He wrote it, and it was published by Simon and Schuster in 1996, and it was a bestseller in France and Germany, and it was never published in the USA uh, or, or England, right? Um, we did have some copies there, but this is also what's so amazing. That was such an amazing story, whether it be true or not true. Let's just pretend we don't know either way. Mm -hmm. Why would such a wonderful story not be republished? Because it was buried, and this was the book that actually opened the investigation into the DNA forensics um, research that was done conducted in 9798 by the West German prosecutor. Okay, because when the prosecutor heard the evidence, they had to reopen the case, right? Um, yeah, maybe. But when you say new evidence, normally evidence is presented in a, in a court of law when you're opening a case. Mm. Somebody comes forward and said, I have evidence that that man murdered somebody. But a book out there that some are saying is just a novel. Why would you? There's something very deep there, isn't there? Yeah, but you know, you know, this is a hot potato. Look at what uh, you can tell us. What happened to Manning when he published his book? Well, Hang on, let's just recap. First, Farago comes out with his book Aftermath. Yeah. And what happens is that he gets everyone against him. And he's, he's of uh, made a fool of and he's uh, crushed. Mm -hmm. And his mm -hmm. friend, which was, uh, for those who don't know it, 
uh, Manning, he was a very res- Manning, yeah. yeah, very respected uh, journalist. So he got angry and he published his book to support Farago mm-hmm. called Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile. That's right. Now, what happened to Manning? Well, we know that his agent was renegade. Uh, Paul Manning's agent was very brave. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, they threatened him not to publish. The agent was attacked in a, an anonymous attack. His legs were broken. Jeez. Uh, yeah, his legs were broken, like basically, because he's, they warned him and he published it. Because I don't think he even realized the significance of this. Mm. This is the publisher. And then, of course, there was the never resolved attack and murder of Paul Manning's son, mm. which is very, very And sad. that was in a short time span after, right? Yes. And Manning after that... Well, come on! If you're gonna, have, if they touch your children, and this is what they do, mm. um, they play with things. If they can't get you physically, they're going to sort of do things to you that basically put you in a corner. This is what happened to David Irving. I was supposed to meet David in, I think it was two. He stood me up over mm-hmm. a course of two years in London because he was terrified. Mm. And we'd had lots of conversations here, but he was concerned that maybe I was working for Mossad. You can't trust anyone. No, you can't because he Mm. remarried, had a young family and I, two places that we organized to meet and he stood me up twice. And once I was really rather annoyed because it was freezing bloody cold. It was outside of Richmond (laughs) station and I'd flown over from Argentina. I was like, come on, Mm. you know, but who's he? How's he to know who I am? How's he to know if I'm genuinely who I say I am? Without introductions and stuff, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and uh, no, but even so, you you get paranoid. This man had been three years in jail, had his house taken off him. Yeah. He'd cut off all resources, excommunicated from his institutions. And just so people know, he's this is the man who debunked the Hitler diaries. So this is a serious historian. Brilliant. Probably one of our most brilliant historians. In fact, I think I, I suspect he's got Asperger's or something because Asperger's, they are very, yeah. they are very yeah. truthful. They don't like lying and they're very correct yeah. and very, you know, yeah. the stuff is in the details. So they don't get yeah. the social pressure, the, you know, so a typical Asperger would say, no, no, it's not six million. It's not three. It's this, it's that. They will go into the details like that meticulously, right? <laughs> and then just... Well, do you know what's really sad about this? This this was a, a leading historian, brilliant writer, mm. well respected. And when that happened, you go, Google him now, and you know what comes up? Comes up on Irving or something. Holocaust denier, I guess. But, Crypto-Nazi, something like that. Right. First first line. Uh, David John Caldwell Irving is an English Holocaust denier. Yeah, Holocaust denier. I mean, Mm. apart from the fact, how did we get to a place? Listen, I'm not denying what went on in the camp. So I want to make this very clear because, you know, you get comeback for this. Mm. But the point is this. If he even believes that, who is anybody to shut that man down because he believes that that's his opinion? Yeah, as long as he's... Apart from the fact he didn't... Yeah. As long as it's his, his opinion based upon research, not just like one thing is opinions based on ideology. Let's say I say all women should be killed. That's just an ideology thing. That's an opinion thing, right? But if you research something. Well, there's a difference there because that can be seen, that can be seen as inciting violence. There's a difference there. So if he comes up and I think he queried the numbers or something, I don't know. I don't even remember what the actual details are. Yeah, I think he proved that the numbers have grown artificially. Well, I do believe that because they've been using the six million figures since 1914 or something. Who was that who put this? If you Google 
on YouTube, something about the six million Jews. And you can see it's been used repeatedly in newspaper articles. One chap puts them all in a timeline starting from night. 19- but I don't get why this is even important. We know people were suffering in the camps. Isn't that enough? Exactly. You know? No, it's not enough because you have to shut the whole thing down because they have kidnapped the Jewish cause. These are not Jews that are doing this. These are not real, good, honest Jews. This is Zionists. Israel. This is Zionism. And you know, a lot of these are really hard-nosed Christians. They're not even Jews that are doing I this. I know. Like George Galloway often says, he says, yeah, mo- yeah. most of the Zionists aren't even Jewish. Yeah. And most of the Jews aren't Zionists. <laughs> <laughs> but the, people don't get that. I mean, isn't it funny? I just give you a, a, a little example. I put something on a website on Facebook. It was a page, an expat page on where I live. And I was asking information about something. It was a legal in, uh, question. And this chap answered me and he was really, really sweet. And he said, hi, um, I'm here in Buenos Aires. You know, it was about getting connections for mm-hmm. legal stuff. Mm-hmm. And within five minutes, he goes and he says, oh, you know, I'm sending you, you know, all this warmth and whatever, and we must connect. We have, we'll meet for a coffee. So he adds me, and then I accept. Within 10 minutes, he pings me back and he said, I'm removing you because you're anti-Semitic. I said, excuse me? I've just seen your page, you're anti-Semitic. Now, what it was, I was thinking, what did he find on my page? First of all, I have Jewish blood. Okay. Mm. And I said to him, you're up the wrong street because, you know, you're wrong. And I analyzed what it was he saw. And it was a picture. It was all to do when we were doing the Syria, because to be quite honest, I do think that's a false flag. I know those children were killed in Syria. Mm. We have to be very, very careful. I think Trump has been. Everybody knows it's a false flag. Come on. Everybody. Oh, really? Okay. Achilles heel. Achilles heel. He's going to respond. And they've all wanted that. That's what they want. They've wanted before. That's what they wanted to do was going to Syria. Everybody everybody who criticizes Trump is cheerleading him now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Mm. thing is. He must have seen, I had put some sort of post that was sent to me of some chap in the street saying, basically, my tax is paying for killing children in Gaza, bombing this, doing that. And I was thinking, what is in that? Because he saw that, obviously, I included something which mentions about the the murder in Gaza. Where's the anti-Semitism? Yeah, but idiots like this guy, they don't realize that Palestinians are Semites too. So how can you be anti-Semitic if you're... Of course, they're all Arabs. Of course they are. And this is the whole point. So what I'm trying to say to you is there's a very big danger. We've got to find a way to crack this. It's even the conspiracy theorist thing. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. I mean, it's like when they were using the term everybody says weapons of mass destruction. 15 years ago, people didn't even know what a weapon of mass destruction was. And they all jump on the bandwagon and they repeat. It's like Papagallo fashion. How do you say? Parrot fashion. Um, people repeat and it works because you it's brainwashing. Yeah, but Lawrence, Lawrence, there's a yeah. big difference today. Big difference. Because back uh, then, uh, I mean, the difference is the internet. Okay? Yeah. And uh, now people know in 2013, there was uh, uh, gas that was uh, blamed on Assad. And yeah. then it turned out, oops, it was Daesh. And then you had the weapons of mass destruction. You have so many lies and conspiracy theories that are launched, like like uh, Afghanistan was involved in 9-11. No, we all know that it wasn't. So for every time they do this, less and less people are believing it. And today, right now, while we're talking about this, even mainstream people, people actually watch mainstream news. Sorry, I, that's, my secu- that's my security guard. <laughs> oh, 
Jeez, I hope we didn't touch too sensitive subjects she's, here. She's a very big <laughs> Kenya? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so all I'm saying is that um, for every time they're pulling some bullshit, uh, less and less people believe them. And remember, it's this thing called critical mass, right? And yes. shows like what we're doing now is contributing to changing the narrative. So there is a battle right now about truth, I guess you could call it. And uh, this is why it's so important we do shows like this. We put it out there and it won't go away until they eventually crush the internet, maybe then. But if that doesn't happen more and more people will have access to the truth. I mentioned Harry Cooper, right? We had him on. Mm. Over 100,000 people have listened to our show with him about Hitler escaping. So, And what know, was the response? What was the response? Well, uh, it's a Mixed. few... I, I thought it would be much more controversial. I thought it would be a many trolls and, and all that stuff. But uh, most, most people are... Let me go in and see, actually. Um, the ratio of sympathy, likes versus dislikes is 120,000 people so far in a year, right? Mm. And 354 likes and 54 dislikes. Okay. So that means that uh, six times more people, mm. seven times more people are going along with it, even though it's a huge paradigm shift. So Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, to recap here, the book named Operation James Bond, this was before Ian Fleming wrote anything about James Bond. Well, of course. <laughs> well, Operation James Bond was, was an operation, the operation to take Martin Bormann out of Berlin. Yeah. The operation was in 1945, and Ian Fleming started writing his books in the 60s, I think it was. When was the first? 60s. So he took yeah. the name from there then? Yes. All oh, right. Because they couldn't, they had to fictionalize it, right? They so. say he put, he took it from a from a bird, what's it, an author, the, the title of James Bond came from this chap who was an author, wrote about birds and when he was living on his island. But that was all play. I mean, Ian Fleming was a, a master spy. Well, he was a spy handler. So the books used the name from there. And still they call it Operation James Bond? Well, the book is not actually... The book Operation James Bond is by John Ainsworth Davis, and he's telling the, the story. And in fact, John Ainsworth Davis is Christopher Crichton, who wrote the book Operation James Bond. Yeah. And it was because of that book. Now, during my research, I contacted the laboratory at the University of München, uh, where they did the forensics on the Bormann remains in 1998. They did the forensics. And actually... When- is that... Is that There's so many Bormann skulls. You're talking about the one with the red clay from Paraguay, right? Uh, yes, the skull with the red clay. Okay. Now, this is what happened. When Bormann came out, he was then protected for a certain amount of years, protected... And deals were done, and then he was released to South America. Now, John Ainsworth Davis, who wrote the book on James Bond, he thought he was in England, and there, I believe, he was initially taken to Scotland. He was kept within uh, British wow. control, and then in 1951, he was released, and he went straight to Brazil to meet up with Mengele, who was there at the time, in a little place actually on the border called Candida Godoy. Hang on, so you you believe that they kept Bormann? 
for almost 10 years in Britain, actually. Well, no, almost six years. I'd say about five and a half years. Six years, from 45 to, to 51. Up to, no, 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 no. Oh, sorry, yes, six years, yes. Uh, sorry, 10 years, uh, yes, up until 1951. Okay. Um, six years, it's six years. So, yes, I do believe that because that's something I can't discuss at the moment until I'm sure, if I can ever be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so he left them. Now, when he was released, he was released because you do deals. And, and not only do they need to, they say, well, why didn't they kill him? No, because then he served as being a white rabbit. So he goes off and he, they keep a tab on him. Plus he had leverage. I mean, he was the one guy with the money. He was the man. He was the man. Now, mm. The one you need to talk to, there's a brilliant... Actually, he won't talk anymore because he got threatened. Um, can you display his name? Yes, I can, because he still writes for The Telegraph and The Guardian. He's a very brilliant Argentine journalist, but actually works in the States. His name is Uki Goni. Uki Goni. I don't think he will talk. I think he is shut down on this subject okay. uh, because he's been really uncomfortable with it. There you go. Still a hot topic, so... Well... He worked on his research. I don't go on the finances because I leave that to the other boys that my focus is in proving, hopefully, that he did get out. And he did some very thorough research because I obviously still had to look at some of the financials to see if it justified him being here or not. And he did some very, very intensive research and accessed lots and lots of documentation on the finances and the companies that were involved post-World War II with this speeder and with the Borman, you know, it was the Borman network, basically. Mm. And he came up with a lot of very good information on where the money went, which companies are, which 750 organizations and companies and banks and whatever they were. Mm. So... When Borman, I believe, first went to Brazil. Now, I believe that because the timing was right with what my research my research was gathered with what I was working on in regards to Church and his relationship with Borman. So he came here, and there are rumors that Borman was actually also in Brazil. Now, you don't believe everything, but you start putting – you have to put – a law of averages, and you put everything on the table, don't you say, this one saw him there, this one saw him there, and you have to put together the compelling evidence of what's true and what's not true. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that's not true, of course not. You hear all sorts of things, he came over in a submarine, he came over in an aeroplane, why would he come in a submarine? Yeah, but I can tell you that the reason they are speculating the submarine is because uh, they're not going with a he was allowed, if he was escaping despite the Allies, right? Yeah. Then at least he could have gotten out with the sub because the sub had uranium and this fantastic, brilliant doctor who was the head of the Nazi research for atomic weapons. And we know this went to the American and we know this was a some kind of deal because the British uh, protected it and let it go. Mm-hmm. And uh, the research shows that it did have some passengers. Maybe it was Mueller, maybe it was Kammler, could even be Hitler. Some people think that. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. There will be some, but it's a bit like the royal family. You never put the monarch and the heir to the throne on the same flight. It doesn't work like that. You are not going to put all your eggs in, in one, one basket. basket. Right. <laughs> it's very yeah. So, So you may totally be right. I mean, Bowman could have been extracted, like you say. It, it, this isn't the main argument. It's just a detail, right? No, but- it's just a detail. The th- point is a lot of us, th- this is the thing, there are many of us researching. And the thing is, we will have things because we can't, 
know everything because no. they, they've done a very good job of burying things. But there are things exactly. that are standing there. So the, I was talking about somebody I'm working with the other day. And I said, the thing is, he said, what do you think happened between there and there? And I said, I really don't know. Because, and I'm not going to invent it. So no. what we don't know, we have to say, I don't know what happened in between that six months. But what do we think could have happened? Let's look around there. So this is the thing. We have to admit that there's no way we can know everything. The thing we can know is what didn't happen. And everybody agrees about that. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what you talk about with the Hitler thing, because there is much more compelling evidence that Hitler escaped rather than he died. You only have to look at the photographs that supposedly sure. what the corpse was. And then they tell us the corpse, they, they were all burned and all charred. It's all rubbish by the Germans. Anyway, mm. so Hitler, uh, Bormann comes down that he stops in Godoy. Now, I have... Um, do you want to go on to, do we need to cover the forensics on Borman, uh, the finding of Borman? Uh, not in detail, because we have had people debunking that. Okay, all right then. So, uh, Anna, you have so much info that I think we should prioritize. Well, there's something important that I would like to raise on here, and I just okay. want to throw this out amongst sure. you. Uh, one thing we do need to look, let's forget the red clay, let's forget the post-1945 dentistry, let's forget the ageing of the bones, which was older than a 45-year-old man. Let's just look at the fact. Now, when I contacted the laboratory that actually did the 1997-98 forensics investigation on the remains of Borman, mm -hmm. okay, they actually put in the report, now when I approached them, I'm not going to say I'm investigating this, I approached it very casually, like, did you do this? And could you give me some information to access the file? Blah, blah, blah. And I actually spoke to Dr. Katja Anschlinger, who was one of the doctors who performed the forensic, um, wow. the DNA. Uh, yeah, and I have, I communicated her on the phone and in email. Cool. And she, yes. So she initially, I mean, she's, I don't speak German. So she speaks beautiful English and we communicated, but she didn't quite know what I was going after. Right. So I contacted and I said, I'd like some information about that, blah, 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 and about the DNA and whatever. Because to be honest, I was trying to get DNA profiling for the, um, obviously for Martin Borman. Now, when I contacted her, we spoke about the, the, what they did. Now, Let's think about this. If you are a group of scientists and you're fully funded mm -hmm. and you have the body of, let's say, let's go back to Napoleon. I would imagine if it was me in charge or one of the doctors on that, we're going to take every possible sample and nuclear yeah. DNA and mitochondrial DNA. And we're going to take this True. and what's you're going to do everything because you've got one chance. And this is history and you're documenting something. Obviously. Obviously. Now, you have Martin Borman. Now, there are two things that are really, really important here. Within the report, when they write up their report, they also have to write up why the request, why the investigation was requested. And they put actually within the report, which you can access, I can't remember the name of the journal, it's in German, but it is up there. Um, normally you have to get it through an institution, but I have a copy of it. No, that's okay. That, that's a detail. Okay, you can find it. Yeah. It says in there, the reason the investigation was uh, conducted on the bones was because the West German prosecutor was very concerned about a book that was written by a former secret British agent, John Ainsworth Davis. Uh -huh. Now, within the actual 
report in the university there of science is the catalyst to that investigation because they were very worried about what John Ainsworth Davis said about Borman. Now, that's one thing. It's in there. That gives credibility. A West German prosecutor said, why would he take notice of some book that's just a novel? Yeah. You ignore it. Number two, I asked her about the profiling. Could I please have a copy of the DNA profiling, whatever? Mm -hmm. And she sends me back the mitochondrial DNA and accesses it to me. And I write back and I said, what about nuclear DNA? No, we only took mitochondrial DNA. Now, what does that tell us? You'll have to spell it out for us. Right, I'm going to explain that to you now. Now, yeah. why did they... DNA can be matched to... Now, and, and that's it. They use, supposedly, this is important before I explain it. They used the bones of Borman to match with the relation, and it was a distant cousin from his mother's side of the family. Martin Borman's son, Adolf uh, Borman Jr., who was Adolf Hitler's godson, was by now... His, his name is actually Adolf? Uh, Adolf, that's his real name, Adolf Martin. He <laughs> was actually in the public domain... He had been a Jesuit priest, okay? Yeah, that's the guy who supposedly disowned his father and, and all that. Actually, he never disowned his father. What he did was huh. he then went round preaching. He was in the order of, he was, a, um, and this is very interesting. When he went into the Jesuit order, he was then sent to a mission in Central America. <laughs> okay. Something happened. He had an incident. He almost died. He was nursed by a nursing nun. Her name was Cordula. It's very romantic. And they fell in love. So they both renounced their vows to the church and they got married. Mm -hmm. So Martin Borman Jr. married Cordula, who was a nun, and they lived quite happily ever after. Didn't have any children. But what they did then, he went back to, he was in Germany, and then he decided he went around schools lecturing about the the, the dangers of war and whatever, how awful it was in Germany, whatever. He never, never renounced his father. Hmm. Now, they could have gone to him very easily because he was out there. Adolf or Martin, could you please come in and give us a swab so we can do a comparison next to these bones, right? Now, these are not 3,000-year-old bones. These are bones that, you know, have only been, even if he died in 45, they, they haven't been around for that long. So, no, they didn't. They chose to bypass the the legitimate son to find a relation of the mother. Now, I'll tell you why they did this. Um, nuclear DNA can match children and siblings to each other. Mitochondrial DNA, so if what they took out of Martin Borman's bones can only be matched with relations of his mother. They are only passed by the mother. So mm. we cannot use that profile to match any of his progeny. Right. So think about this. Yeah, because uh, he had, uh, he even had illegitimate he had children. children. I believe he had children. One child, I believe, and I think this is the key to this investigation, mm -hmm. if I can go on my hunch, now, I'm going to tell you something I haven't told anyone. I have actually, it's taken a long time. In fact, he had one particular child, which I'm in contact with, wow. who was conceived in a clinic in Brazil, okay, wow. in 1951. She was born in 1952, and she was adopted by the former head of Truzijos, 
uh, naval um, people that were going into Brazil doing deals with the army, with the Germans to buy hardware. But you know the show Hunting Hitler. Yeah. They dug up an old woman there who apparently is his daughter. Is that the same? You're talking. You're talking dug up. Literally, or you're talking about they met or they dug up? No, no, no. They uh, um, provided the info and managed to convince her to come on camera and admit that she's his daughter. And I was wondering... Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't see that. Was she one of the legitimate ones? No, no. One conceived in South America. Uh, and uh, it was in the last one of the latest episodes. And they had to go via, via people. So I was wondering if this is the same. How did they how did they justify her conception? What did she have as background? <sighs> I I don't recall. Uh I think she actually lived with him a few years if I'm not mistaken and then he left her when he, she was very very young. I may be mistaken. You should go back and look at that episode. I can't actually get it. I can't get it because I live in South America and it's full of crooks here. So Oh no no no. Everything is free on the web. I'll send you a link, okay? Where you can see everything. Okay. See so if you can send me a link. I can't find sure. it because it says not permitted in your region. Yeah, that's if you go by the official stuff, right? But everything well, is... Well, I, I always go through the official venues, no time. <laughs> but this time we can make an exception, I think. And, <laughs> I thought... and it's interesting. So, yeah. I was into... One of my interviews was actually put on Hunting Hitler. I haven't seen it. Me neither. But when I interviewed the... I believe it's uh, second season number five. Not quite sure. But I'm interviewing the former chief of the federal police here who actually... Met Martin Borman in Buenos Aires. Yeah, we'll get to that. I have that in my notes. Okay, so here we go. So let's get back to this. So yep. when I found out that they had bypassed the son to get, and I asked her, who is the relation? Of course, nobody would tell you. So what does this do? What this does, this prevents people like myself coming forward with somebody to say, this child was, now if we have, can prove through science and DNA analysis, that this child was conceived in 1951. Case closed. Six is dead. Hello. Exactly. I can then retire and pass it over to my colleagues and say, right, now you look <laughs> at what you're doing with which companies and the money. Because mm. they, they always ask me about the money. And I said, I can't be distracted looking at the money. I want to find the evidence. Actually, the smoking gun. This would be the smoking gun. I have uh, unless been... sorry, unless Mengele got some DNA from Borman and created her in a lab, this is a smoking <laughs> gun. <laughs> but then he'd still need something. He'd need some cells or something, wouldn't he? He'd need some. True. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and here's another point we need to make. I'm talking for myself. I'm not on a witch hunt. I'm not a Nazi hunter. Right. I'm not. I'm a history hunter. Yeah. And I am looking for information. So. Where I've been revealed, for example, this lady in the United States who I have a great hunch because her lawyers went to the Simon Wiesenthal Center in 1984 because she had a very bad feeling. Her adopted father revealed stuff to her and she felt sick about it. She wasn't proud about it. She thought, oh, my God, what if I'm Hitler's child? And he said, you are one of the three, one of the daughters of one of the three greatest men of Germany. And she assumed Hitler. She didn't even know who Bormann was. Mm. It was only when she got hold of me and I started to look and look at the locations and the things, it starts to sort of, you know, like the dot to dot, you see little lines coming out. And I said, oh, my goodness. Well, listen, let's check this out. We don't know, 
but let's check. And she said, who is he? And I said, well, this is who it is. Because not, do you know, you'll be surprised, Al, how many people are not familiar. Yeah, maybe your listeners are, but you know how many people don't know who Martin Borman is? And even fewer back then, because he was in the shadows. He was the spider in the shadows. He wasn't like yeah, uh, Hitler and, and Hess, who was yeah. very... Yeah. Uh, prone to attention. Yeah. But what happened when you went to the Simon Wiesenthal Center? So I, oh, when I went there, I it took me a while, first of all, because I, I, I made a very big error. We all make errors, but that was a major f- mistake I made. I was lax. Assuming they were sincere and interested in truth? I didn't do, I let my guard down and I didn't do my research on who I was dealing with at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Now, I have an enormous respect for Simon Wiesenthal, the man that Mm. founded the organization. And I think he did it in very good faith. He was genuinely hunting down monsters like Mengele, etc. And he wanted them brought to justice. And I think that was honorable. I think it was great. So I think the center started off as a legitimate organization to help victims and to now... So they have a brief. They're supposedly Nazi hunters, and they're still looking for. Now, a lot of money is raised by the Simon Weisenthal Center. Mm. And we know we're now how many years post-1945. Most of the guys have gone. The majority have gone. They're gone because they're not going to be 120, 110 years old. The bureaucrats have taken over, basically. Younger generations, yeah. They have. So I tried to contact, I kept sending, and I used my, this is where your press credentials are important because then you can put on uh, blah, blah, blah. So I was approaching them as a genuine member of the press. Now, the reason I contacted them was because although this lady came to me for help, I still have to check out that she is genuine in that, not necessarily that she is a child of one of the Third Reich, but that she has a genuine cause and she genuinely believes this and it's not for motives of fame or protagonism or do you understand Mm. she really has concerns so when she told me that after her father's death she approached the simon wiesenthal center in 1984-85 i had to go and check it out so i contacted them and it took me ages to get some feedback and i nagged and nagged and finally i got on the phone and i did my little bit of heavy duty stuff you know basically (laughs) i'm a journalist (laughs) and we're on the record now and could i talk to and why are you not taking my calls I finally got through to speak to the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, who is Efrain Zurov, Zurov mm-hmm. uh, a New Yorker. And this was back when? This was probably in 2009. I can't remember okay, when it not was. Not that long ago. Okay. Not long, not long ago. Because mm-hmm. uh, this lady came to me, I think, in 2007. Maybe it was a bit earlier than that, eight or nine, I can't remember. But it was... Later into my investigation, I decided to double check with them that if they actually have on the record that some attorney in Florida approached them about a lady who was adopted by this chap from Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic, sorry, um, and then went to the USA. Now, they did have it on the file. And it is true what she told me. She told me her attorneys told her that the Simon Wiesenthal Center would not investigate it because they didn't have the funds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what are they spending right? the funds on? Champagne? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't think of anything more more that's worth spending funds on, which is potential that you were adopted in Brazil, where Mengele was. The very reason they are existing, you know? Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> exact amount. So that was my point. And that's why I say 
I do not want to spit on the memory of Simon Wiesenthal because I think he was a great man. But I have to say that is not what it is anymore, the Simon Wiesenthal exactly. Centre. Uh, let me corroborate that story because we have uh, one of our regular guests, Peter Lavenda. He's, ah, yes. he's also a boots on the ground guy, yeah. right? He was uh, yeah. probably the only one, actually, who managed to get into colonial dignidad and out alive. Yes. But he was young then. He he didn't know the game. He went straight to one of the, the people he tried to contact was the Simon Wiesenthal because the American government just dismissed it. Yes. Obviously, then back then he didn't know they were in cahoots. He discovered this later. Now the documents is out there. It's all proven. So they knew about colonial dignidad. They knew about what was going on there. All that stuff. They knew. In fact, they were waiting for Peter when he came back on the orders from Colonial Dignidad. But he tried to go to Seaman Wiesenthal Center and they too dismissed him. Wouldn't oh, really? They oh, wouldn't really? have anything to do with it. Exactly. And I asked him because Peter, like you, he has some intelligence sources and, and stuff like that. And he thinks that at, uh, after uh, who was the latest Nazi to be captured? Was that? Uh, Pribke. Pribke. When was that? Eric Pripke, 2010 or 11? No, no, but okay, but but before that, there was, uh, was it Barbie? Eichmann. Huh? Eichmann. Eichmann, exactly. He said that after yeah. Eichmann, there was a complete lid. A Mossad, CIA, nobody wanted to go after them anymore. He thinks it's a deal or something. I don't know why, what, but uh, this is it. We're moving on. And well, it's all a show. It's all a show yeah. because I know they came down here in 2011. Anyway, that's really interesting. I wonder if you could contact Peter and ask him who he dealt with at the Simon Wiesenthal Centre. How many years ago was that? Do you know? Um, I believe this was very early, actually, because uh, it may have been in the 70s at least, or, or the 80s. I'll ask him. Or you can ask him. I can give him your his contact and you can ask him. Yeah, because he did. I think the earliest book he was, I've got it his, is uh, The Unholy Alliance, isn't it? The yeah. involvement with the occult. He was, he, Lavender was really interested in the occult aspect and the alchemists. And am I right on that? Yeah, but he followed up with, uh, he actually came around to, to the same subject as Harry. He made a book called Ratline, where he tried to prove that Hitler did survive. And uh, then he, he went into the economy, which is Hitler legacy. Yeah. So he's still uh, deep in that. And just now he has a huge project with this famous famous guy Tom DeLong, some pop artist that everybody apparently knows who is and now they're doing the whole NASA Nazi secret space program stuff so he's still deep in the Nazi thing oh right okay wonderful I'd like to know who that was because the chap that I spoke to and I have to say he was incredibly rude and he was the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and it's Efrain Zuraf Efrain Zuraf and he was a New Yorker Running this, I was talking to him in the head office in Israel. Okay. Mm. And it turns out that he was the former training officer from the Mossad school. So he's basically a gatekeeper. I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no. I made major, major mistake. So initially, when I asked him, I said, look, you know, could I have the file? I'd like to. And first of all, how can it be possible that Wiesenthal, Simon Wiesenthal was one of the ones that actually said Bormann escaped. You know that. When the bounds were found, this is before that he had the... Was this before um, Manning and Farrago? He said this, Wiesenthal? Yes. Wow. Yes. And he, up until his death, he believed that that the that Bormann had escaped. And it was when they did the found the bones that he was like, oh, you know, 
he was actually in there. He didn't actually analyze the fact that he could have died late and been put back there, made it look like he, mm. he, he died then. But anyway, um, I realized I'd made a boo-boo then because he was really quite confrontational in the conversation, which is really not necessary because your job is to be, and he came here called Operation Last Chance in 2011, where he came down here to look for supposedly some doctors, the last Nazis that was little living down, funny enough, in Bariloche. And I know for a fact, he was taken to a house where supposedly there was this person inside. He didn't even go in. Mm. He just did the press opportunity of him being there. And then he got on the plane, he went. Free holiday. It was all public relations trip. Mm. That we're doing something, but they weren't. So when you say there was a shutdown and a lid put on it, an agreement, that's very likely because that answers that question. But... Um, so he said to me in the conversation, basically, I don't buy it. I told him, look, I really need your help. Could you access the files? I need to look at the DNA you've got held there. And I need, because I also need to compare what they've got there with the university in, in Munchen. And um, no go, no go. Shut down on me. He didn't buy it. He didn't want to know. He didn't believe it. And I said, it's well, his I damn job. People come with tips. People come with inquiries. It's his yeah. job. Yeah, but the, the, to turn around, but isn't it a joke when you say you've got somebody coming asking you for help to support a project that you're supposed to be being funded to do? For people like me to come forward and say, "Look, we've got this. Could let's look at it." Yeah, you're handing it on a plate, basically. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't buy it. That's exactly what he said. I do not buy it, and I said I'm not asking you to buy anything. You're asking to help improve it, right? Not buying. Yeah. yeah. So I realised that was a little eye opener for me, and I thought, oh, oh, that was a mistake. So he shut down on me basically. So I knew I was screwed there. I wasn't going to get any information out of them. Hmm. And within days, on my LinkedIn profile, he was trying to add me, hmm. and I was thinking, mm, that's curious. <laughs> Maybe his handler said to him, you stupid, f find out what she knows. Go back to well, her. <laughs> well, of course, there you go. And have a chat and also find out who she's connected to. Exactly. And I also found some of my sources in Russia were also connected to him. So I thought, oh, oh so here we go. Right. Um, so I sort of took a little turn. Sometimes you have to go off radar for a while. You know, you say, okay, I'm going for a breather. Um, so here we are. Tell you what, Lawrence, let's take a short break. Yeah. And when we come back, let's delve even deeper into this matter. So is this a cup of coffee or a glass of wine now? Uh, whatever you prefer. <laughs> okay. We'll go for the wine for the second half. Okay. 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 <laughs> All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show... You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 